Lord Jesus, thank you for paying our price, the price of our sins. Help us to love you, Lord. That message is so well known, so ancient. Your good news, your person, who you are, what you've done has been proclaimed so long, so often, in many cases so well that we sometimes are no longer in awe of the most amazing fact that we could ever hear that the eternal uncreated son of God made us, sustained us, and then seeing us far from him died for us to bring us into God's family so that we could be called God's own sons and daughters and be loved by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help me to explain that well. Help us genuinely not only to listen, but to worship and give us a heart, Lord, that is shaped by the truth of your word and your person. In Jesus' name, amen. I had a professor who was a captivating teacher. And like so many teachers, he pulled you in with questions. When I was a young staff member at this church, still in Bible college, he called, he was a Scotsman, had the wonderful accent, which I will not try to replicate. He was brilliant. Some of you knew him, Dr. Ken Connolly. And I picked up the phone and said, this is Central Baptist Church. This is Bruce. How may I help you? And he said, Bruce Ken Connolly, where is Jesus and what is he doing right now? And I just kind of sat at my desk chair the way I'm standing in front of you now, pondering the question. I didn't actually know. I wasn't entirely sure. I had some ideas, some Bible verses popped in and out of my mind, and I went on to find out. He was studying it, so he just thought he'd ask me, a Bible college junior. Sometimes it's good to ask Bible college students things before they... Well, they still know everything. <laughs> I think that was part of his reasoning. So in, in his honor and his memory, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. And don't answer aloud because we might have some conflict and dis some disagreement. You might quarrel among each other. Some of you might be embarrassed. Just think about this. When Jesus was 18 months old, could he have performed his miracles? I said, don't answer, and yet I hear, <laughs> I hear the answers cascading forward. Let me ask it another way. When Jesus is in the manger, he was born of his mother, Mary. He only has a stepfather on earth, a guardian, Joseph. Scripture's clear about that. People supposed Joseph was his father, but God was his actual father. When Jesus is placed there by his loving parents and guarded on the first night of his life, is he pretending to be a baby? If there were starlight, if there was starlight above him that night, do you think he is gazing up from the manger, admiring his own handiwork? Is he admiring the constellations that can be seen from that part of the world? Is he pleased with his work? Or is he an actual baby that does not yet know, really, that he actually exists? 
who responds to his mother's voice because he heard it so often in the womb, but flinches a little bit when his father speaks to him because the voice is less familiar. I have a biblical answer for you. It's one of the quietest verses in the Gospels. It's also one of the most stunning. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told in the second chapter, look at it with me just to make sure that you understand the magnitude of what we're looking at here. Luke chapter 2, verse 52, because this is the answer to both questions. Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus increased in what? In wisdom and in? What does that mean? He's getting taller. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in what? Favor with who? With God and man. Do you understand the mind-blowing awesomeness of that verse? The eternal Son of God, the uncreated God, has become a human being and is an actual, ordinary, normal human being. He's much more than a human being, but he is 100% human because human beings need to learn. He grew in wisdom. Human beings need to grow up physically. We love children when they're little. We celebrate their little roles. My wife would talk about babies so fat that it looks like they screwed their hands on. I just admired three precious, beautifully dressed little girls who toddled carefully into church, being very careful to step over the curb because the curb is a little challenging to them yet. We love that. It would be tragic if 10 years from now they were still the same size. Jesus is growing in wisdom, he is growing in stature, and most astoundingly to me, somehow the human being, Jesus, is also growing in favor with his Father. Wow. I thought in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yes, that is also true. Jesus is eternally God, but he became a human being, and as a human being, he experienced everything you, your children, and your grandchildren have experienced growing up, growing wiser, growing taller, and hopefully, if you're well-behaved kids and grandkids, growing in favor with the neighbors. And people are saying, have you noticed Joseph's boy? Oh, he's good with the saw. Cuts it straight. Does what he says. His work's on time and it's clean and it's solid. He never cheats. He never cuts corners. He's growing up and he's being admired by his community. Soon enough, he will step back into the synagogue in the fullness of his adulthood. He will be given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah two chapters later in Luke chapter 4. He will read something that Isaiah wrote 700 years earlier, speaking of the one God would send to give sight to the blind, to heal the brokenhearted, and to set captives free. And he would say, today this scripture is being fulfilled right in front of you. And they tried to kill him for it because they could not fathom 
that the boy born in mysterious circumstances who reportedly had been laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn had actually grown up and as a grown man is claiming to be the son of God. The answer is in what we began last week to look at Jesus' nature, Jesus' being as the eternal, uncreated God, that Jesus is God and Jesus is also a human being. I bit off more than I could chew last week. I didn't have time to explain to you and apply for you how great those two truths are. As a way, by way of review, last week we said two great truths about Jesus. First of all, he is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Hebrews, we read in, that God has spoken to us by his Son, but whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God because he is God. In Hebrews chapter 1, we hear the Father speak to the Son and say, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. We heard Jesus say, Before Abraham was, I am. And we heard Jesus say, I and the Father are one. And in both instances, in John 8 and John chapter 10, when Jesus clearly explained who he was, the crowd tried to murder him because they understood his claim to deity. And I tried to explain to you that the, con the most common belief and contradiction of who Jesus actually is and claim to be is people deny his deity. Most religious movements in the world deny the deity of Jesus. Judaism does, Islam does, the Jehovah Witnesses and Hebrew Roots movements do. All kinds of religious groups, the man in the street who is not a Christian is very likely to believe that Jesus is a good teacher and a good example, but God, you're pushing it too far. And they think that you're speaking of some kind of science fiction, superhero kind of nonsense, and they reject that the human being who spoke words of wisdom and words of love could also be and spoke in that way because he was God. We also saw that Jesus is a human being, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John the Apostle says, that which was from the beginning, that's his deity, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and we have touched with our hands, that's his humanity. John, a commercial fisherman, is telling you how real he is that John himself saw him, touched him, heard him speak. The truth then is that Jesus is God and man. And theologians have a special term for this. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. Do you feel smarter already? <laughs> now, why do, why do certain disciplines, really any discipline makes up terms? Why is that? To be precise. As each of my boys start their respective careers and things that I know nothing of, I'm always interested in hearing the lingo begin to spill out of them because now I know they're really being formed in their career. They're really being formed in the knowledge and the content and the skills because the terminology is just coming out of them naturally. The study of the Bible presents the greatest truths ever 
So it also has its own specialized vocabulary so that when that term is used, everybody knows what you mean. You just have to learn the term. Hypostatic union, the underlying terms are Greek, and that is a reference to the word that in the Bible we translate nature. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 that I read to you a few minutes ago. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, speaking of Jesus, we're told this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The Greek word underneath our English word nature is where the word hypostatic comes from. If we want to take it out of Greek, I guess we could call it the naturific union, but it doesn't sound as cool. That's, I think, why some specialists make up their own terms. It's not only for precision, it also sounds cooler. It occasionally makes you seem smarter. So now you can wow your friends with the term over lunch. Have you considered in the miracle of Christmas that we are beholding the hypostatic union? You ready to say that? No, because you're not pretentious. You're wonderful, loving people, and you would never do or say a thing like that. Why does it matter? It matters a great deal. Because the hypostatic union, this idea that Jesus is God and always has been and became a man is giving you this simple truth that Jesus is one person with two natures. That's a fundamental difference between Jesus and you. You're one person. How many natures do you have? One. What is your nature? You're a human being. That's it. That's all you ever were. That's all you ever will be. Your nature is human. The hypostatic union, these verses I've just read to you, whatever we call it, even if we don't know the term. The term isn't important. Almost every Christian that has ever known and served the Lord has got through life without knowing the terminology. I'm explaining it to you because you may find it helpful down the road. And terms also signify if they've existed for so very long and you go back and dial back Christian history, you're going to find that Christians very, very early with thunderous agreement all agreed on the truths that I just presented to you. So your neighbor who just watched a YouTube video that opened up his entire mind He's actually listening to a very old, sad, tragic lie. Every lie that can be told about Jesus has already been told for centuries. But it's important that you know who Jesus claimed to be, what the Bible announces that he is, and here it is. He is eternally God, and in the incarnation he became a human being. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That verse dials it all the way back to eternity past. God simply always has been. That's the claim of the Bible in its very first verse. In the beginning, God created. Where did he come from? He didn't come from anywhere. He is. He is the absolute beginning fact of the universe. And here's the astonishing part. 
the eternal Son of God, who was always with the Father and always was God himself, existing eternally in relationship with the Father as a Son at a specific time in history, became a human being. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. And this is addition, not subtraction. Without minimizing, changing, or laying aside his deity in any way, the eternal word, God, became flesh, a human being. Is this making sense? One more mind-blowing fact before we apply it and we finish. I don't know if this has occurred to you. Jesus remains a human being. There's a common conception that Jesus took on humanity to die for sin and then ascended and returned to the Father as he promised to do, as he prayed about in John 17. And somehow I think we get it in our mind that he lays his humanity aside as a set of clothing that had to be taken on for a time but can now be safely discarded. And he has not and he will not. Thomas the Apostle saw him back from the resurrection with the wounds so real, so human, that he offered Thomas the inspection of his hands, his feet, and his pierced side. You will see the Lord Jesus someday because the eternal Son of God who exists eternally as God at a specific time in history, roughly 2,000 years ago, took on a human nature. He added a human nature to his divine nature. And you literally can't conceive of anybody doing something like that because it is beyond our comprehension as simple beings that have a beginning and only will and always have had one nature, a human nature, for the eternal Son of God to keep his deity but add to it humanity. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John reports. Wow! Absolutely incredible. And Philippians chapter 2, maybe you'll read it with fresh eyes, says that he humbled himself and became a human being. And being found in the form of a servant, he humbled himself further by submitting himself to death. Yes, death on a cross. We can't conceive of the humility of becoming a human being because this is all we've ever been. And I feel pretty good about it. Don't you feel pretty good about being human? You've envy your dog sometimes because he's <laughs> carefree. But haven't you always generally preferred and loved being a human being? It's pretty great. But Jesus, the eternal God, for a time limited himself in human flesh to the point of learning who he actually was of needing the care of his mother so that he would not die, of learning the scriptures just like every Jewish boy ever had, of sometime around the age of 12, if I'm reading the Gospel of Luke correctly, having the clear realization that though he had a home and he would obey his parents perfectly, the, Luke, the Gospel of Luke actually says this, he went home with Mary and Joseph after they forgot him, after they left him behind, he went home and he submitted to them. And that matters infinitely. 
that a 12-year-old Jesus is going to go home and obey his mother. That makes a world of difference. But the stunning thing is he was willing to do it. And he retains his humanity even as he has always retained his deity. And even now he sustains the universe by the power of his own word. Absolutely astounding. Why does it matter? Let me tell you. This was all done because of love and it matters because as a human being, Jesus entered our experience and faced our temptations. Hebrews chapter 4, one of the most important verses in my opinion for present day believers who deal with so much guilt and shame. You can read it with me if you have it in your notes. And I'd love for you to read it off the notes so that we can all read the same because there are so many translations of the Bible. If you have it in the notes or you have it on the app, read with me Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16. The Bible says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is superior and that he's better than every priest who has ever served Israel. The best the great high priest of Israel could do the high priest of Israel could do would be to enter the Holy of Holies once a year. Jesus, the Son of God, has passed through the heavens because he's God. Heaven is his home. The right hand of the Father is where he belongs. But because of his humanity, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Do you have weaknesses? What do you do with them? Let me tell you what I do with mine. Sometimes I deny them. I didn't do that wrong. I'm not mistaken. You're mistaken. If you knew what I knew, then you'd know I was right. Someday you'll learn that I'm right and you'll, we'll both be right. It'll be great for both of us. I deny my weaknesses. Sometimes I acknowledge them and I hate them. Other times, I accept them and I work on them. Other times, whether I accept them or not, I am brought low by them. Just like you, my weaknesses torment me, limit me, push me every single day. In Christ, because he became, because the Son of God became a human being, you do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with your weakness. He understands your weakness because... In every respect, he was tempted as you are, but without sin. See, there are some of you who have done things that you find so dreadful that you can't forget them and you can't forgive yourself. And you think that your sins and your failures are in a special kind of category that God knows nothing about and can do nothing with. And you're 100% gloriously, beautifully, to the glory of God, wrong. 
because everything that has ever tempted any human being was faced by Jesus in his humanity. This is why both natures matter. God cannot be tempted by sin, but human beings can. And Jesus entered humanity. He didn't pretend to be a human being. That's why as a baby in the manger, he was not pretending to be a human being. He actually was because he's going to go from conception to death all the way through the human experience with all the limitations and frailties of human flesh, including facing temptations in that flesh in every way, the way any and every human being has always been tempted, but he's going to do it with the glorious exception. I don't know if you noticed it says yet without what sin and since he has passed through the heavens wants to come to earth another time to return we can draw with confidence near to the throne of grace and there we will receive mercy and there we will find grace to help us in our time of need when do you need grace and mercy you need it when you need it You need grace when you've blown it. You need mercy when you deserve consequences. You need grace when you've sinned. You need mercy when you deserve everything that's coming to you. At that moment, because Jesus has passed through the heavens, you can too. And you can go to the great throne of God and there find not a judge indignant at your sin, but a loving father who has been satisfied by the life of his only begotten son who loved you enough to become a human being, enter your very experience, be tempted just as you are, die for you offering his righteousness in place of your wickedness, and there you will be accepted in the throne room of God in the exact same way that Jesus, the son of God, always has been. Amazing. This is how you're loved. Who enters the throne room with confidence? Only the king's children. Everyone else makes an appointment. Everyone else hopes not to anger the king. Everyone else hopes not to say the wrong thing, be exposed, get embarrassed, get fired. The children of the king, they walk right in and they say, Hi, Dad. It's amazing. That's why his humanity matters. As God, Jesus is strong to save all who trust him. If somehow Jesus were merely a perfect human being, none ever could exist until Jesus. But if by some wild stretch of the imagination, Jesus were an ordinary human being and only a human being and not God... Such a perfect man would be righteous and accepted in God's sight because he did nothing wrong. But he would save only himself. Jesus, the human being who faces temptations common to every human being, all their frailties, all their weakness, thirst, rejection, abandonment, he understands all of it. Please understand that. Loneliness is the plague of our time. Jesus was the loneliest man who ever lived. At the end, only in communion with his Father and the Holy Spirit. All who knew him, all who claimed to love him, 
forsook him in the last moment. They ran for their lives even as he protected them. Your solitude, your loneliness is real and painful. Jesus knows it. Jesus understands it because he lived it. Your chronic failure and fall into sin, your inability to escape habits and the grooves that sin wears into your life that seem to always drag you back into the same old dreadful fatal patterns. Jesus understands it because he felt that lure. He felt the reality of that temptation, but he faced it without sin. But if he were only a human being, he would only, his life would only avail for himself. But because he is God, he's able to save anyone and everyone who claims him and trusts him. Listen to him. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. No mere ordinary human being can say what follows. Only God can say the next sentence. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If any ordinary human being, anyone you've ever met, think about the person you most admire on earth. You got it? LeBron James, someone said. No. <laughs> Love LeBron as we do. Aim a little higher, okay? World-class athlete. Think of your mom, think of your grandma, think of your, think of your heroic family members. You got it, the person you most admire? What if they told you, I will give you eternal life and you will never perish? What would you think of them? They need medical attention and quickly. They're losing it. Jesus, the son of God, says, I have a flock and that's why I've come. I know my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. Only God can give eternal life because God's life is eternal. God is life so he can give it. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Here's his deity again. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are what? One. one. There's deity again. And they hated him for it. And the very next few verses talk about their attempt to kill him. And they succeeded. Because he wanted them to. They thought their plot was successful. In reality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were successful. God was successful. God put his son on the cross. The son willingly went to the cross. The spirit who empowered Jesus for ministry, who descended upon him visibly to give attestation of who he actually is at his baptism. God, united in purpose, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has saved human beings through the sacrifice of the Son. This is why the Trinity matters. This is why the person of Christ matters. The Father sends the Son. The Son dies for sin. The Holy Spirit regenerates. He gives the new life that God is and that God has. He gives it to ordinary sinful human beings, makes them a whole new creation, and makes us fit to live in the family of God. And someday, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will finish the work that God began in eternity past when the Father, the Son, and the Spirit decided that the Son would die, that the Son would be sent, and the Holy Spirit would give life. It's absolutely astonishing that you're loved in this way. 
This is why shame and guilt have to take their place, defeated at the feet of Jesus Christ. Countless Christians are tortured their entire lives that they're not worthy. You've got it half right. Of course you're not. How could you satisfy their demands of a holy, righteous God who knows everything perfectly all the time? How could you stand in such a God's presence and much less have the assurance that he loves you? It's not your worth. It's the worth of the son dying for sinners to make them into sons and daughters. It's the love of the father to send the son to do just that. It's the shared love and strength of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit keeping you safe, keeping you secure, keeping them each, father and son, in your grip so that you will not be lost and snatched out of the father's loving hands. You're more loved than I can tell you if you're in Christ, but only then. So really, that's the question. It's not whether what somebody else thinks about you. It's not about what the pastor says, religious opinions, political movements. All of it falls beside. All of it fades. All of it fades into unimportance and irrelevance compared to this eternally important question. Are you loved and saved by God in the way that Jesus is describing? Are you hoping for the best? Are you doing your best? Or do you know for certain you have been saved by the Son? If you haven't, I'm going to invite you to make sure of that right now. And if you have, I want to invite you to thank Him. And to realize that the eternal Son of God took a body for your sake. And retains a body as permanent testimony of his great love for you so that you can one day admire the cost of your salvation and so that you can have fellowship with him somehow gloriously with the Son of God face to face. You with your glorified saved body, he with his resurrection glorified body that he took after defeating death in your place so that you could have him, so that you could have, in other words, eternal life. There's no one like him. Every prayer, every act of service, every dollar, every kind thought, every kind deed you will ever offer in the name of Jesus will be eternally worth it. That's why financial giving should not be a big deal to Christians. It is, but it shouldn't be. Because how could we possibly ever do enough to spread the news of this Savior? A moment ago, we applauded for the volunteers who make all this work. I'll tell you why they do it. Because they love Jesus. Because they love you. Because they want people to be able to hear about Jesus. That's what ties this all together. We're not running a program. This isn't the rotary as good as their good deeds are, they'll all fade in eternity. None of that will matter anymore. It matters here, but not for long. Only one life will soon be passed. Only the things done for Christ will last, someone said. So if you don't know him, take him. And if you have him, be grateful. Let's pray. Could I just invite you to accept Christ? If you are not certain of your salvation, could I give you a quiet moment to turn to him, to turn to Jesus, saying, Jesus, I believe.
please forgive me. I am sorry for my sin. I've ignored you. I've put you off. I've sinned against you. I've broken your rules. My conscience troubles me. I feel the shame and the guilt of it. I am very sorry. Please forgive me. Please save me. You run to Jesus for mercy, you'll have him. And along with him, eternal life, because that's who he is and that's what he does. If you do that this morning, please send us a text and let us know if you're online. 714-868-7258 is the number. Send me an email if you prefer. If you're here in the tent, fill out a card in the bulletin. Let us know that today you've placed your faith in Jesus as Savior. You can leave it in the baskets on the exit on either side of the stage. And Christian, this is how you're loved. Your uncertain job, your failing health, your struggling family, it all matters. But it doesn't compare with the eternal love of God, the Son of God who loved you this way. Everything that's wrong will someday be made right by him. He'll wipe your tears away. It's in the Bible. He'll comfort you. You'll look back and see his faithfulness all along the path. You'll see that your greatest fears and your greatest sufferings and struggles, you'll see them for what they were, conquerable in the hands of an almighty God designed only actually to draw you closer to him, to make you more like him. You're loved, Christian. You're loved. Set your shame and your guilt aside. Rest in Christ and spend the rest of your life telling others how good he is. Jesus, thank you. That's my best approximation of being able to tell people how wonderful you are. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, eternal word of God, eternal son of God, for becoming flesh, living among us, facing our temptations, doing so without sin, laying your innocent life down on the cross so that we could have it instead in life. Thank you for loving us this way. Help us walk with you. Help us be generous and loving and sacrificial and confident that when we speak in prayer, we speak to the Father who loves us this much, and with him we may find mercy, and we will receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, Amen. Amen. Folks, in my own small way, I love you too. I love opening the Bible with you. I love preaching to you. I love how you struggle with it and respond to it and build on it. Keep on going. Two weeks from now, back in there, baby. We're not even going to have the big party yet. We'll go through the learning curve together. We'll get used to being back together. We're going to have a lot of little parties. And later, when the time is right and things are truly normal, we'll have the par biggest party we've had since our 50th church anniversary. If you're new, welcome. My name's Bruce. All my contact information's in the bulletin. I'd love to meet you over there at the hello table. Be aware, I'm an extrovert. I love to meet people. So if you don't have a lot of time, just say nice to meet you and keep on walking. But I would love to meet you. God bless you. Bye-bye.